Please open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll be surveying verses 19 through 27. First Corinthians 9, verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became one as one under the law, though not being under the law, that I might win more of those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win more, might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings." Do you not know that all in a race run, all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So far, the reading of God's holy word. Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, what kind of reward would you need if you were to run a marathon tomorrow? What kind of incentive for you to complete that race? Remember, a marathon is 42.2 kilometers. What kind of prize would you need to find yourself at that starting line? What is the trophy that would keep you focused running that race? When your muscles start to ache, the cramping starts to set in. You feel shortness of breath. The blisters burst and rub raw. What honor or accolade will carry you through as the lactic acid builds up in your legs when they feel like they are locked in concrete? And when you feel like giving up, what will be your motivation? You see, for Paul... He has a reward in mind as he runs his race. And our focus this evening as we explore Scripture is running the race for the sake of the gospel and to share in its benefits. We'll examine this in two points. It produces selflessness and it produces self-discipline. 
In verse 19, Paul makes a peculiar statement. For although I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all. Now, it's a statement with a twofold purpose. On the one hand, Paul is attacking the social prejudice of the Corinthian elite. See, to the Corinthians, climbing the ladder of success is paramount. In the eyes of the Corinthians elite, a lifestyle of manual labor was performed by lowlifers. Exposed to the elements? No thanks. Rough hands? Nope. Sore muscles? I think not. See, it's beneath them to engage in such work. So when Paul claims to be a servant or a slave, this would sting the ears of the Corinthian elite. See, how are the elite supposed to climb the social ladder if they must stop and help others along the way? See, but Paul is not concerned with social status, nor is he worried about climbing the social ladder. See, his concern is for the gospel. But on the other hand, Paul explains that in his freedom, subjecting himself to servitude has the greatest impact on his gospel ministry, for which is his ultimate concern. See, because Paul is free and not a servant of anyone, he can serve whom he chooses. Paul is free from the manipulation that might come from an elite group who support him, a group that might feel an entitlement to his services. See, but Paul's real goal in subjecting himself to being a servant of all is that he might win more of them. A goal that is driven by the advancement and the proclamation of the gospel. Now we should ask the question then, who are they? Who is it that Paul is trying to win? In verse 20, Paul explains his servitude by using four groups of people. And amongst the commentators, there is some dispute about who these groups are. But the first three include the Jews, the Gentiles living according to Jewish customs, which are also called the God-fearers, and the Gentiles. See, as Paul explains his strategies to become like he makes two parenthetical statements, two sidebars. And we're going to tackle this up front so there's no confusion. See, Paul is clarifying when he says, become like the Jews, he is not subjecting himself back under Jewish laws regarding salvation. Paul is not returning to the old covenant to try to achieve what Christ has already accomplished for him. Nor when he says he becomes like the lawless, is he forsaking the law, He is not acting outside or independent of the law, but rather in accordance with the law of Christ. See, Paul is clarifying his position to the Corinthians so they know exactly what he's talking about. So what might this look like for Paul ministering to these groups? To these groups that he's trying to win. One commentator explains in contemporary terms, Among the Jews, Paul was kosher. And among the Gentiles, he was non-kosher. Now, for Paul, being kosher might have included living according to their customs, using Jewish forms of instruction, the circumcising of Timothy at Lystra, a Nazarite vow in the temple, observing the rules of Jewish laws, not as a means of salvation, but following also the rules about eating. See, Paul would be sensitive to those he was trying to gain. Sensitive as far as it does not go outside the law of Christ. 
that he finds himself performing works that Christ has already accomplished. And Paul now pivots to the last group which he mentions, is the weak. And there is some dispute about, amongst commentators about who the weak are, but there is something that beams like a spotlight through the cloudiness of who the weak are. And do we catch it? Look at verse 22. See, Paul does not say he became like the weak. There's no parenthetical statement, no sidebar there. Rather, Paul simply states that he became weak. To the Corinthians, this would be just as abrasive to their ears as when Paul told them that he became a servant. See, the Corinthians are not interested in becoming servants or becoming weak because being weak is not elite. It's not a strong position of power. Their focus is becoming part of the elite, atop of that social ladder, looking down with all the privileges and status. See, how can the Corinthians brag that they pulled themselves up by their sandal straps if you are weak? But Paul is not persuaded by their goal. And why become a Christian elite or a Corinthian elite anyways? Think about how small the ancient world is. Their greatness is limited to the knowledge of how many people. Even in Corinth, the city with the traffic from land and sea, how many people will know of their greatness? And regardless of the number of people who will know you while you are alive, what does that number dwindle to when you're six feet under? So the ears of the Corinthian elite will not be able to hear the praises of man buried six feet under dirt. It's foolishness. See, Paul wasn't elite in the eyes of the Corinthians. He's a mere tent maker. Paul had to defend his ministry. But Paul was elite because he was called to be an apostle set aside for the gospel of Christ. Paul was elite because of his devotion to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul was elite because he possessed wisdom, the gospel message, a demonstration of the spirit and of power. Paul was elite because he chose to become weak. Free in order to become a slave to all. The ultimate expression of being truly Christian because it is truly Christ-like behavior. So one commentator explains. See, when Paul explains that he's weak, he's highlighting a dependence upon Christ. He boasts about his weakness because Christ's power is made perfect in weakness. For the sake of Christ, Paul is content with weakness, content with insults, with hardships, with persecution, calamities. See, Paul's weakness magnifies his need for Christ and draws attention to the glorious work of redemption that Christ accomplished on the cross, demonstrating a greater selflessness than Paul could ever manifest. See, Paul became weak so that he could save some. And it was only because Jesus Christ became something that Paul would ever fathom or want to become weak. See, Christ was free in the fullest sense of the word, yet he came to serve his creation, and he became sin for us. Displayed weakness as he hung on the cross in full humiliation as the true Passover lamb, 
and was crushed for our iniquities by the full weight of the wrath of God poured out upon him, and he died. And in three days he rose again from the dead and removed the sting of death for his bride, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father. See, now Christ is elite. He is the one on top, having claimed a name above every name. He is the Lord of lords, and he is the King of kings. See, Jesus Christ is the one that will be remembered after death, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you want to become elite, become a servant. Become weak. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. See, in a culture that strives to become the strongest, the smartest, the most beautiful, the richest, the most powerful, Paul is disinterested in becoming a Corinthian elite because it is a temporary endeavor. Instead, Paul sees the value of becoming weak. His motivation was not to gain converts to climb the social ladder or that he could punch holes in his piety belt. Paul was not worried about himself or his status. Paul was selfless in pursuing the gospel's advancement. He became all things to all people that by all means, so that every way every which way possible, Paul might save some, even the weak. And Paul's motivation was the gospel and to share in its benefits. See, Paul's motivation was not himself or the view of others. It was for the sake of the gospel, something bigger than himself. Therefore, Paul chose to become a servant because it allowed him to have the most effective ministry reaching many different people in a culture who lusted after elite status. Being motivated by the gospel and sharing in its benefits, we see that it produced selflessness in Paul, but also we see that it produced self-discipline. In verse 24, Paul closes his argument with an athletic illustration. He uses a rhetorical question. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? And you might be wondering why. Why would Paul use this particular illustration? Why athletics? But Paul understands that his audience is familiar with the Ishmaian biannual games. See, it's an event much like the Olympic Games. So in verse 25, when Paul says that every athlete exercised self-control in all things, the Corinthians would understand that athletics requires hard training. It requires self-denial, being particular about diet and sexual appetite. They would understand when Paul explains that every aspect of the athlete's life is governed by his training and his desired reward. Their self-discipline governs anything that might control the outcome of their race. It's all-consuming. Yet Paul does not pull his punches as he delivers the punchline. See, the athletes do it to receive a perishable wreath. Yet for the Christian, 
It's unperishable, imperishable. Paul is explaining the motivation of the athlete is shaped by his desired outcome. It's a perishable wreath. He puts his body through extreme conditions. He does this for a moment of glory, for this perishable wreath. See, but for the Christian, everything that they do is not shaped by a perishable wreath, but an imperishable one. Paul is showing the Corinthians there is something better to be motivated by. Something better to gaze upon than worldly accolades or temporary things. And Paul uses himself as an example, explaining that self-discipline is not purposeless or an exercise in futility. Paul demonstrates diligence that extends past a mere outward presentation of piety. Paul illustrates that his running is not aimless, without purpose or boxing, without an opponent. See, on the one one hand, Paul explains that self-discipline prepares him daily for his ministry. And he explains to others what he himself believes. See, Paul explains to those like him, motivated by the gospel, like Timothy. Paul says the qualification for overseer must be above reproach, sober-minded, and self-controlled. And Paul explains to Titus to appoint elders who are self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. See, Paul is not only speaking to others about the value of these attributes, but Paul needs them as well. Paul needs to exercise self-control himself. Remember, Paul explains that he is all things to all people. Therefore, not to be overcome by the temptations of culture, he needs to exercise self-discipline. Because he is engaging with the world, trying to remove obstacles for the gospel message. But on the other hand, although Christ has come and freed Paul from the bondage of slavery, Paul does not see the value of continuing to sin because grace abounds. Why? Because Paul's self-discipline keeps him from being disqualified in the race. Paul is laboring diligently so that the work he has built on the foundation of Jesus Christ survives. Paul does not want all his work destroyed because the message he preached does not harmonize with how he lives. And many have felt the repercussions of a lack of self-discipline. And the ministry is discredited and the work is destroyed. See, these actions discredit the gospel message. The very message that, Paul, that drives Paul's ministry. So Paul makes sure that his labors are not in vain, like boxing the air, but he is diligent in preserving his work with self-discipline. See, for Paul, the advancement of the gospel and his share in its benefits governs how he lives his life. He is selflessness in his pursuit to become all things, to all people, so that by all means he might save some. And he exercises self-discipline so that his work is not destroyed. A heavenly reward shapes Paul and it produces in him selflessness and self-denial. And Paul encourages the Corinthians to be just as diligent and to run a race shaped by a heavenly reward and not earthly ones. So what motivates you? When you wake up in the morning and it's another day, 
of work and your Christian calling? What gets you out of bed? Now, we don't have the same calling as Paul, and there are different callings amongst all Christians for sure. We're all called to different types of work, but we should all have the same motivation. So what is your motivation? Is it earthly? Things that rust and wither away? The praises of man? Are you climbing a ladder of success? Or is it the opportunity for more money? See, these things do not last. They are temporal and momentary. Are you motivated by something heavenly? Something eternal? Know this. An imperishable wreath awaits for you when you cross the finish line of your Christian race. It is placed upon your head a reward that will never perish, that will never rust, that will never wither away, never become dull. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It's a crown of glory. It's not something that will sit on your shelf and collect dust, nor is it something forgotten about in the box in the attic. Let your eyes fixate on this heavenly reward. Be motivated by the reward greater than the athlete because his wreath will perish. The athlete strives for glory that only lasts a moment. A chance to hear their name announced as champions standing on the podium, their anthem being played hand over the heart, teary-eyed over their country's flag. But it only lasts a moment. A few seconds compared to all the days of their life. And it's even shorter compared to all of eternity. Yet they labor with strict self-discipline. They subject themselves to fitness requirements and yearly testing, to body composition requirements and monthly testing, to perpetual sore muscles and broken bones, harsh criticism from coaches, from peers, from fans. They abstain from the desires of their flesh for a chance. It's not even a guarantee. A mere chance to be crowned with a reward. There's no guarantee. And this is the saddest part about the athletic endeavor. And Paul acknowledges it. But only one receives the prize. All the athletes that compete for the prize. But that does not mean they obtain it. There's no grace in athletic competition. One slip or trip. One lapse of judgment. A day of failed training. All that struggle. All that toil. You just blew your chance to be crowned champion. See, Paul's athletic illustration is spot on because this is the foolishness of the Corinthian elite, so wrapped up with the moment of glory, a glory that you might never, ever receive as you labor for it. Just as the Corinthian elite or the athlete or any of today's professions, in their pursuit of a perishable wreath, it's foolishness because they might not obtain it. See, but for the Christian, you do not labor in vain in your Christian pilgrimage, applying selflessness and self-discipline to your Christian calling. You can be consumed with zeal for living a Christian life and laboring as a Christian at your job, laboring as a Christian spouse or a Christian signal, a Christian parent or a Christian youth. You can eat, breathe, and sleep the Christian life because you have what the athlete does not. 
You have a guarantee. Brothers and sisters, he's not here. He's risen. As he said. It was not a ribbon that fell by his waist or a dainty paper banner that ripped as he crossed the finish line. The curtain of the temple was torn. And now Christ sits on the victor's throne. See, Jesus Christ ran the perfect race so that you do not have to run a race filled with fear, filled with doubt, with worry. Worry about running the perfect race? A race filled with selflessness and self-discipline? See, your labors are not in vain. You do not complete your race because you hurdled your obstacles well. Because you ended with no faults. You finished because Jesus Christ finished for you. You get to run with joy. Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who run for Christ, do not fear being cut. You don't fear being traded or not qualifying for the finals because of your lack of performance. Think about the grace that this affords you. Every day is a new, challenging, uncertain leg of your race. You are not running because you have, not, because you have qualified for the next stage of your race. You wake up and you get to run the Christian pilgrimage for the pure enjoyment of running. The pure pleasure of running for Jesus Christ. So run. Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, when you finish your race and you receive your undefiled, imperishable, unfading crown of glory that's placed upon your head, the anthem that you hear will be like nothing you've heard in your entire life. And as you stand there with straight legs and an upright chest, standing with your fellow Christian runners with a hand over your heart. It won't be a flag that you gaze in awe of, but it will be the glory of Christ. So as we run the different legs of our race, remember, run for Christ. Run for the gospel. Run to share in Christ's benefits, and we will end up running a race overflowing with selflessness and self-discipline. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you thanking you that you are a God of great mercy, that you have set before us a Christian pilgrimage that we ought to run, that it's best run selfless and with self-discipline. But we know that there's many hurdles and rocks that stumble us upon this race, Lord, but we have comfort and the guarantee because Christ Jesus has run the race for us, that he has finished the perfect race so that we get to run with joy for the sake of running for Christ. May he be our motivation and the heavenly reward that waits for us as we continue to run this Christian pilgrimage. It's through Christ Jesus that we pray all these things. Amen.